Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Today we start a brand new chapter. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And if you've listened to the singing this morning, we've sung the message of our focus needing to be on the Lord Jesus Christ. Single-minded focus, purity of devotion to Him. You're going to hear that in the message today. Hey, we've already sung it. You know, I told you that I was going to call it poise in, persecution, in the face of persecution would be the theme for the whole rest of the book. Well, I changed my mind. I'm not real good at titles, but when I got into chapter 11, I realized that he's going to now take us into a real intense study on the danger of spiritual deception. And so I want to, I want to entitle this next series that we're facing here in 2 Corinthians, The Danger of Spiritual Deception. And today what I want to talk about is the heart of a true teacher. The heart of a true teacher. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we're only going to go through verse 3. I tried my best to get to verse 6. I can't do it. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1, 2, and 3. And you're going to wonder why I'm only going to get to one point until I finish the message. You'll realize I couldn't have gone any further. Let me get you into this. The heart of a true teacher of the Word is a precious thing to observe. And we're going to see this in verses 1 through 12. Before he actually gets into the, the, the aspects of false teachers he, and false apostles, he talks about the aspects of his own life, of a true teacher. He's a true apostle. We're going to see this lived out in Paul's life. A true teacher will preach and teach, whether it be in the pulpit or whether it be wherever. A true teacher will preach and teach God's Word at any expense to himself for the spiritual health of the body of Christ that he loves. You see, the greatest enemy to God's people is, is, is doctrinal deception. And I think maybe I want to say that again. The greatest enemy to God's people is doctrinal deception. Doctrine is so, so important. You see, once error gets into a person's mind, then it becomes the stronghold that controls his behavior. This is what happened when we studied Galatians, remember? How they turned from grace, living under the freedom of grace, under the bondage to the law. And Paul wrote to them, oh foolish Galatians. And what happened was it divided the whole church. There were factions everywhere. Why? Because of their belief system changed. They began to think differently. They began to act differently. This was what was going on when Paul warned the Colossians and they were facing the Gnostic heresy. And he was saying, people, please, please, Jesus is the treasure house of knowledge. Jesus, all the beautiful things he says in Colossians. Christ in you is the hope of glory. 
This is what was going on in, with the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians, they didn't know what happened to the body when it died. They understood the spirit went to be with the Lord. What happened to the body? And Paul had to, and they were grieved over this. It was causing a lot of dis, dis, uh, concern in the church. And Paul had to write correcting that. In 2 Thessalonians, they thought the day of the Lord had come, of all things. And so Paul had to straighten it out because believing wrongly had changed their behavior. This, is what, this was the warning Paul gave to the church at Ephesus. When he wrote to them, and he, he told, he, not when he wrote to them, but when he met with the Ephesian elders on the island of Miletus, and he says, as soon as I'm gone, wolves are going to rise up among you. And he's talking about the false teachers and how they're going to pervert the thinking and therefore the behavior of the church. This is what was threatening the church of Corinth. And so the stronghold, the stronghold of thinking is so important. That's why truth, God's Word, has to be preached and has to be taught. God's Word is truth. And when truth is preached, it sets a person free. But false doctrine will cripple his life and put him into a bondage that is very hard, if it even can be. It cannot, cannot be broken outside of the Word of God. Sin, no matter what shape or form it takes, stems from a lie that a person has believed. And as we enter into chapter 11, in 2 Corinthians, verse 1 and 2, we see the heart of our true teacher, the Apostle Paul. He's going he's to unveil himself to, before the church of Corinth. Paul begins by saying in verse 1 of chapter 11, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. Now, that phrase, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness, needs to be understood in light of, of the context. Remember, context always rules. That's why I do so much review. We have just seen in chapter 10 how the false apostles in Corinth and their followers walked according to the flesh. Now, what does that mean? What is their behavior like? Their whole message was a lie, and, and their lifestyle was all about the flesh and pleasing its needs. As a result, there was no spiritual discernment at all. Remember, they looked on the outside. They didn't look on the heart. They had no spiritual assurance whatsoever. They had to somehow assert themselves. They had no spiritual identity. They were so fake and so false that they had to tear Paul down to build themselves up. They commended themselves as apostles who had great credentials. But here's the interesting thing. There was no spiritual life in them. All they, all they taught, all they preached was death to the people. They bragged on the work that others had done as if it were their own. They boasted of themselves instead of boasting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Their whole life and their whole ministry was all about them. It wasn't about Jesus. But the Apostle Paul and the way he lived, the way he preached, the way he taught was astonishingly different in contrast to these false teachers. He boasted in Christ alone. He didn't point to himself. He always pointed to Christ. In fact, even if the people didn't understand the difference, they could see it. They knew there was a difference in the two people, uh, the false apostles and, and, and Paul. Paul refrained from commending himself. He said in verse 12, For we're not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they're without understanding. Paul did not dare enter the arena of having to justify himself and his work based on the standards, the false standards of the false apostles. He said, I'm not going there. I'm not going there. He did not dare speak of anything except that which God had said to him or that which God had ordered in his life. 
Do you realize, we brought it out last time, but, but make sure you understand, Paul had authority as an apostle. We don't have apostles like Paul today. He had authority not just over the Corinthian church, but over all of the Gentile churches. You see, Peter was given the authority, the apostolic authority over the, the circumcised Israel, but Paul was given the apostolic authority over all of the, Corinthi all of the uh, Gentile world. In fact, if he were a fake apostle, which he was being accused of by these false apostles, there would be no Corinthian church. The fact that they existed showed that he was who he said he was. And Paul's heart was for the Corinthians to see, to see them, separate them separate themselves from the false teachers and the false doctrine that they were, they were listening to and to grow up spiritually. Come out of the nursery, he says in his first epistle to them. And he said, I want you to become a base of mature believers so that from this base we can have a missions outreach to the whole world, the regions beyond you that have never heard the gospel of Christ. But until they matured, they could not become that base. Missions only can flow out of hearts that are living the message they want others to hear. Paul's heart was to see them, again, come away and, and stand with him for the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul did not boast of himself. He only boasted of Christ. It says in verse 17 and 18 of 2 Corinthians 10, But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. Paul only wanted Christ to commend him. And he refused to commend himself. He said, Wayne, why are you going through this? Because you have to understand that about the Apostle Paul to understand his statement in verse 1 of chapter 11. This is why it's so difficult for him to do what he's about to do. He's about to talk about himself. He doesn't like to do that. Uh, he begins with the words, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. The word wish is an interesting word. It's the word ophilo. The word ophilo is a wish but it's, it's like in asking somebody to do something that's it's hard to do. It's difficult to do. It's like a sigh. Oh, that you would bear with me. Or, or saying, would that you would bear with me in a little foolishness? The word foolishness is the word afrosini, which means a lack of sense. <laughs> Paul can hardly bring himself to do what he's about to do. He thinks it's foolish, but he sees the need to do it. He's got to show them the comparison of himself and the comparison of the false teachers. He, it's very distasteful for him to do what he's about to do. And by the way, he does it several times in the next few chapters, and every time he does it, he apologizes for it. He doesn't like it because he doesn't want to commend himself. He only wants Christ to commend him. But he's willing to sacrifice his own dignity here. He's willing to, to suffer embarrassment to do for the people what will help them, and, and even though he feels uncomfortable in doing it. And I love this. Paul's identity was in Christ. It was not in who he was. It wasn't in his title. It wasn't in what he did. It was in Christ. That's a good thing for us to remember in the 21st century. My identity is not in being a pastor at Hoffmantown. My identity is not being in my name. My identity is in Jesus Christ, and so is yours. So whatever else is just fluff. But what my identity is, what your identity is, we find it in the Lord Jesus. It was said of a great man, he never remembered his dignity or his, or his, digni his, uh, his identity until others forgot it. That's the only time it came up. <laughs> he didn't live having to have people say that to him. 
So he humbly asked, would you do what I feel foolish in asking of you? Bear with me. Indulge me if you would. He said, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. He knew that they would, but he just felt foolish in asking them. Paul so loved the Corinthian believers. I, I hope you can see this. He was willing to say hard things to them. He was willing to embarrass himself to, to say this to them because he wanted to help them come back to truth, that truth might be the stronghold in their mind. His heart really comes out in verse 2 of chapter 11. He says, For I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I, may pre I might present you as a pure virgin. Now, the word jealous there is the word zelo. Zelo is, is, is a Greek word. It actually describes a pot of water that's, that's boiling. <laughs> it's about to boil over. It's, it's a lot of zeal in it. It can be a good word. It can be a bad word. If it's used in the wrong context, it can be bad. Here it's good. He said, I, because I, he adds to it, he says, with a godly jealousy. There is a godly jealousy. Zelo then in this context, it, it, it seems to me, is to desire something for someone that you love so much with a zeal that is intense. That's a good word to use. For I betrothed you to one husband. This is his, this is his desire. It's, it's beginning to frame what his heart is here. For I betrothed you to one husband. The word betrothed in the phrase I betrothed is the word harmozo. It, it was used of a father giving his daughter away in marriage. It could be understood in the context of Jewish marriage. You know, Paul was steeped into the Jewish heritage. He was a Jew, and, and, and he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. He, he understood Jewish culture and Jewish thinking. And, and, and see, the idea of, the, of, of a, us being the bride and Jesus being the bridegroom is very, very natural to a person who understands Scripture. In Isaiah 54, in verse 5, God said through the prophet Isaiah, For your husband is your maker whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. Isaiah 62, 5, For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. That comparison had been made many times in Scripture, and so it was natural for Paul to use the metaphor of marriage and to think of the Corinthian church as the bride. Uh, to the bridegroom who's the Lord Jesus Christ. We're part of that bride, by the way. And Paul brings that out in other epistles. So at, at a Jewish wedding, there were two people that were very important. They were called the friends of the bridegroom. Now, one of them represented the bridegroom. One of them represented the bride. They had many duties. Uh, they acted as liaisons between the two because there was not to be a lot of contact between the two, uh, the bride and the bridegroom. They carried invitations to the guests. But you know what their specific responsibility was? Their specific responsibility was guaranteeing the chastity of the bride so that she would be a pure virgin when she came to meet with her husband and to consummate that marriage. And this could be Paul's thought here. It probably is. In the marriage of Jesus Christ and the Corinthian church, uh, uh, the future marriage. Uh, Paul is the friend of the bridegroom, who's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his responsibility to guarantee the chastity of the bride, and he'll do everything he can do to keep the Corinthian church doctrinally pure and, and, and morally pure and a fit bride for the bridegroom for that wedding feast. 
Paul was their spiritual father with a heart to protect their purity as the bride of Christ. Now the false teachers that came into play here, the false teachers were those adulterers who proclaimed themselves as apostles, were out to destroy the purity of the bride of Christ, just like they are today. But Paul knew that even though they knew the Word of God, even enough to deceive the people, there was a difference in Paul. Paul knew the God of the Word. That's a big difference. They knew enough of the Word to confuse, but Paul knew the God of the Word. Not only did he know the Word of God, he knew the God of the Word. Paul had the upper hand. Paul had the upper hand. And that's why he's doing what he's doing here and trying to help the Corinthian church be salvaged from the false doctrine that's invading their territory. Stories told of a group of people dining out together. And in that was a professional actor was sitting next to an older man. And at a certain time, they asked the actor to stand up and give a speech. So he chose rather to quote Psalms 23. And he stood up and quoted it with great voice, with great oratory skills, with great professionalism. And when it finished, they all clapped. They had been entertained. He sat down beside the old man. They asked the old man, said, would you like to do the same thing? And he said, well, sure. He stood up and he finished. When he finished, though his voice had been shaky, less than professional, there was a hush. Nobody clapped when he sat down. Just a holy hush. And the actor who was so professional and so good at what he did looked at the old man and said, Sir, I know the song, but you definitely know the shepherd. That was the difference in Paul and the false teachers at Corinth. As their spiritual father, as their spiritual shepherd, he cared about the church of Corinth. And he wanted their freedom in Christ to remain pure. He wanted them that day when we all go to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He wanted to, to be presented. He wanted to present them as a pure virgin. And he means that in spiritual terms. Uh, the doctrinal purity, which means a, a morally pure life. Because the, what you think determines how you live. Well, that's a long introduction. <laughs> that's why I've only gotten to one point today. But I think it's necessary to understand the, the heartbeat of a true teacher of God's Word and why he will not compromise the Word of God no matter what it cost him and no matter what people think or like or don't like he will not do it he'll say the hard things when he needs to why he's trying to protect the church from spiritual adultery which will lead to that kind of behavior and will not it will be an impure bride when they're presented to the bridegroom now look with me at Paul's heart as we've seen already, the, the way it beats, let's just look some more now. What, what, what makes up a, a true teacher? What's the heart of a true teacher? And only one point. A true teacher, and we've said it already, wants to protect God's flock. You see, Jesus kept saying to, his, to Peter, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. As a shepherd, a teacher, will do three things that, that, that's very, 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 very clear. One of them, he'll guard the sheep. The shepherd guards the sheep. A shepherd will guide the sheep, and a shepherd will graze the sheep. He guards with God's truth. He guides with God's truth of the Word, and he grazes with God's truth, which is the Word. Now, Paul makes a comparison in verse 3. It's very interesting. He goes back to the Old Testament and he picks out Eve in the Garden of Eden and how she was deceived, seduced by the, the devil himself. And he compares that on one side 
with the Corinthian church being the bride of Christ and the, the false teachers seeking to deceive them. He says in verse 3, But I'm afraid that as the, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That's, that's quite a mouthful. I'm going to take us the rest of the message to work it out. The word afraid in the phrase, I am afraid, is the word phobeo. Phobeo means to become fearful, and it even has the idea of being terrified. I'm terrified. Now, the interesting thing is it's in the middle voice. A lot of people miss this. A middle voice in Greek. We don't have a middle voice in English. It needs to be explained. The middle voice has very similar uh, action to it as the active voice. I'm doing something. But it also has a passive meaning with it. It's like a deponent verb. It's like a middle passive verb. But the middle voice always carries that idea. Yes, I'm afraid, but it's because of something. And Paul is saying, I am afraid for you. I am terrified, but there's a reason I'm terrified. Because of what I know is going on in Corinth as he was even writing that letter. It brought it out. And you see, Paul sees deception as a horrible thing. Now, there was a legend. Now, understand, when I say legend, I mean legend. And it wasn't about Adam's sin and Eve being deceived. But it was a, a legend that the Jews believed at the time Paul was writing this. It, he could have been referring to, I don't know, that said that Satan actually seduced Eve. There was a violation of her physically. And Cain was the illegitimate child, the illicit child. Now, some Jews chose to believe that. Paul didn't believe that. However, if you look at the germ thought of that legend, that someone violated an innocent one. And as a result of violation, there was a birth of illicit behavior. The Apostle Paul, to me, could have been saying, these deceivers are like rapists. They're like violators. And they want to come in on the bride of Christ. And they want to infiltrate their minds. They want to impregnate them with wrong thoughts. And they want to give birth to the illicit behavior so that the Apostle Paul could not present the church as a pure virgin, what that day to the bridegroom. Pretty good thought. In fact, you just, you, you can, you, we don't know. That's just a thought that I threw out that was going on at that time. However, it's got a point to it. It's a great illustration of what false doctrine is. Next time you catch yourself listening to it and think it's not bothering you, be real careful. Would you listen to somebody who wanted to violate you? I don't think so. But you see what we do? We just let the world just continue to infiltrate our minds with that which is going to change our paradigm of thinking and as a result going to change our behavior. Well, whatever he had in mind, we do know that he's referring to the actual event of what happened in the Garden of Eden, of the fall of mankind in the sin of Adam. And he, he compares the fact that Eve was deceived by the Spirit. Revelation 20, I mean the serpent, excuse me, deceived by the serpent. Revelation 20 and verse 2 describes the serpent as the devil and Satan. It says in Revelation 22, And he laid hold of the dragon and the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Eve was led astray to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. Now her deception so affected Adam that he, he wasn't deceived. He chose, because God had told him face to face, he had chose to sin against God's command, which had caused all mankind to be born into sin. Just think about that for a second. What deception of one human being, the cost of that to the rest that were born after. 
led Adam, Eve's deception led Adam to sin and to the fall of all mankind. Romans 5 and verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man, that's Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The word deceive there in verse 3 is the word ekopateo, which means to so deceive that it results in the change of one's thinking, which is radical, and it changes their behavior. That's, that's deception. You have to understand deception, folks. It's not something you play with. It's something you'd give yourself, your life to. In the end times, when the Antichrist is on this earth, he's going to deceive people. And I'm talking about a true deception to where it changes everything, the way you think and the way that you live. I saw this on film. There was an experiment years ago uh, in a classroom. And the instructor got up, brought in an iron that you would iron clothes with. And he went in front of people, plugged it into a wall socket, and then turned the iron on in front of all the people that were there. And he set it down. Then for the next 30 to 40 minutes, he explained how hot an iron can get. He explained what would happen if you put the iron, hot iron, against the skin and how it would sizzle and all the different gory things that would happen if you left the iron on the skin. And then at the end of it, he called up someone. He says, come here, I want to show you something. A young man walked up. He, he said, roll your sleeves up. And he took the iron, immediately grabbed his arm, and stuck it on his arm. Well, the, the class was horrified that a teacher would do that, and the young man screamed in excruciating pain. And then the teacher calmed everybody down, and he says, now I want to tell you something. That socket's a dead socket. This iron is not hot. This iron is cold. But the man, the young man had been visibly affected. Why? Because of that which he falsely believed. That's the way deception works right there. It is so real in your mind, it becomes real in your experience. The devil was so convincing to Eve that he was able to lead her to question God's word as a result to disobey God's command. He disguised himself as a serpent. Yeah, I don't know what a serpent looked like before the fall. I know they crawled after the fall. Somebody said, Wayne, what, is it, what does it look like? I don't know. I haven't been there. wasn't there. When we get to heaven, I'll ask some. I mean, I'm going to find out, but I don't know what it looked like. Evidently, it was pretty presentable and it talked <laughs> I just get a kick out of thinking what it might look like but the serpent came to her and he was just and it was the devil disguised as a serpent and talking to her he could talk you see God had given Adam a specific command here's the old serpent disguising himself trying to get her away from that which God had said and a specific command was Genesis 2 16 and 17 the Lord God commanded the man saying from any tree of the garden you may eat freely but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Well, the devil deceives Eve and causes her to question God's word. I mean, some say that maybe Adam failed to tell her what God had told him. And if it's typical of most men, that's probably right. We don't know that for sure. That's just a great way of looking at it. But at any rate, in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, this is what he's referencing. And he's, he's comparing now the serpent de de deceiving Eve with the false teachers deceiving the bride of Christ at Corinth. Now look at this, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, now watch this, Indeed, 
Has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, and she got this pretty, pretty much right, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may freely eat, or we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Now, God didn't say anything about touching it. He just simply said, don't eat from it, but that's okay. She's close enough. The serpent said to the woman then, he, he turns it a different way, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you, you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, there's an aspect of truth to that. When they did, they immediately saw what evil was about. They didn't know what it was about before. And now they saw each other's nakedness, and you know the story goes downhill from there. The devil, the devil only tells truth or partial truth when it serves his purpose. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes. Doesn't this remind you of 1 John 2, 15 and 16? And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. You know, the devil only has three parts of a game plan. And we'd figure that out. She took from its truth and she, fruit and she ate. And she gave also to her husband with her. And here we go. He deliberately, under no deception, ate. And that was the sin that cast him out of the garden. And that was the sin of Adam, of which we're all born into when we're born into this world. So Paul is referring to this as we continue in verse 3. And look at the consequences of a person's deception. Look how, look how far it goes. No man's an island. You don't do anything by yourself. When you sin, when I sin, it always affects others in some way, shape, or form. The false apostles had deceived the Corinthians to question Paul's apostleship. And thus the instructions he had given to them. You realize that we don't have apostles like Paul today. Paul was, was writing the New Testament as he penned these epistles to these churches under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. In our day, to question the authority of an apostle, you can't do that because you don't have any. But what would it be like today? It would be questioning the very Word of God that the prophets and the apostles gave to us. When we start questioning, did God really say that? Well, you have to look at it this way. Well, actually... Oh, brother, immediately it sets up in your mind that this book is not your authority. And from that point on, your behavior is going to fall down and, and grow decrepit as a result. Well, the word craftiness, he deceived Eve by his craftiness in verse 3, is the word panergia, which means to be crafty, cunning, shrewd, a crafty person like the false apostles of Corinth. We use any means. You know, these, these are the false teachers that came in and seduced the minds of, it didn't do it overnight. It was a slow thing, and it was a, a luring and a wooing and getting them to listen to them and like them, and et cetera. But its end was to deceive. I love Terry Adams, our music pastor. I, I tell you, I'm just so pleased to have the staff we have. You've heard Brother Ken, Brother Terry. I'm just, I, I've never worked in the company of such a band of brothers like these. Terry is not just a musician, loves the Lord, walks with him, but he loves the Word. And we discuss it every week, and that's why he decides what he's going to sing based on the passage that I'm going to be preaching from. And if you'll listen, you'll hear the message in the songs as before you ever hear the Word spoken. But the other day, we had huddle time. 
we have that at once a month for our staff. That's everybody. It's a fun, fun time. It's just to get together, to see each other. There's 40-whatever-plus people working around here, and we bring them all into the room. I remember the first day, they only brought two pizzas. <laughs> that wasn't good. <laughs> so now we've encouraged them. I think we're up to about 12 or something like that, but it, it's much better now. <laughs> Uh, I remember one day we had huddle, and I left with Tommy and, and uh, Curtis, and, and they said, where are you going? I said, well, now that we've been to the huddle meal, we're going to get something to eat. You know? But we have a great time. We, we honor birthdays, anniversaries, and just basically have a great time recognizing each other, sitting around the table. And we also have a devotion. This week, uh, Terry led the devotion. Terry came in with a hat. <laughs> By the way, he's got a sense of humor that will sneak up on you guys. And it has a hat, it has lures hanging all in it, different colored lures, spinners, uh, all kinds of different lures. And I knew where he was going immediately because I've already been studying chapter 11, and he, he was in it also. And he said, listen, you know what these lures are for? <laughs> of course, I, I know. They're deceivers. And their purpose is to catch a fish that's too stupid to know the difference. And you know, there were different kinds of lures. There were different colors, different shapes. Because, you know, not every fish is fooled by the same lure. Because everybody has a weakness that's a little bit different. And you've got to, you've got to match the, 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 the cat with the catch. You know, how do you say it? The hatch with the catch or something like that. But you've got to match the two together. And I thought, man, that is exactly what's going on in 2 Corinthians 11. They knew how to get to these people. I guarantee you they knew how to do it. False doctrine is nothing but lures to bait one's fleshly appetite with the goal to trap it, to catch it, and to bring death. But its danger is that when false doctrine is believed, here, here's what we have to look at from chapter 10. It, it establishes strongholds in one's mind. And those strongholds will determine how a person thinks, how he reacts, how, how he behaves. That's the danger. The more I listen to the false things of the world and not to the true things of God's Word, the more I become like the world because that's what I'm listening to. That's what's determining how I think. And Paul says, man, can't you see it? Can't you see it? Remember the context of chapter 10. We talked about strongholds and how it changes the behavior. That the whole key is not their behavior. That's symptomatic. It's where a person's coming from that causes him to behave the way he behaves. So in Corinth, the devil, the old serpent himself, disguised himself as an apostle. He didn't come in as a serpent talking to Eve. He came in as an apostle and sought to deceive the believers who would listen. The fabric of his deceptive garment was made up of luring fleshly characteristics such as professional polish. I guarantee you if he lived today, he'd have PowerPoint, high-tech screen. He'd have all the tools. He'd have everything to, wow, that's good, to lure the people and, and to disarm them. He had worldly credentials, had all the resumes you needed, impressive resumes, honey-tongued speech. But every bit of it was just to impress the people who were so gullible they didn't know the difference into believing a lie. He's willing to seduce the bride of Christ and make them impure before the bridegroom. They were good at their deception, folks. And many had already bought into it hook, line, and sinker, and the apostle Paul is trying to warn the rest. Verse 3, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, 
your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Whoa, what a mouthful. The word minds here could be several words, but it's the word noema. And noema refers to the part of the mind that gives us the ability to understand, to perceive. So that your understanding of what the Christian life really is, that your perception of a single-minded devotion to Christ will somehow be led astray. And you don't see it like you used to see it. The word, the word the simplicity itself is the Greek word haplotis, which means a single-mindedness, a single focus, not, not a double-mindedness. Deception leads one's understanding away from their simplicity of devotion to Christ. Oh, how important this is to all of us. The word purity is the word hognotis. Hoplotis and hognotis is the word that means sincerity. And it has a lot to do with, with the body and its pure way in which it lives in this world. Do you see how wrong thinking leads a person's whole understanding of excitement about Jesus and focus upon him and his word off the track? Let me ask you this question. How many of you have been there besides me in your Christian walk when you started listening, not paying attention to God's Word, and all of a sudden that fervor and that excitement of walk with Him, that joy of waking up every morning and knowing that He's your life, that joy of being in His Word and the revelation He only brings to you when you're, when you're there, emptied of self, wanting to hear Him, and He just pulls you away from it to where your Christian life just gets cold and mechanical and it's not real anymore. Anybody besides me been there in your Christian walk? You see what he's saying? It's incredible if we would just think it out. It's simple. Person's got a problem. He did, well, I don't know about church anymore. I don't know about, well, what in the world led you off the path? Where's that excitement you used to have to share Christ with somebody? Where's that excitement you used to have to get into the Word? What happened to you? And you can easily, easily find out something led you astray. Something messed up your understanding that that's the only way to live the Christian life. It's not Jesus, if he's not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all in your life. And people just don't get it. They think that's radical. If you want radical, go back and study the Gospels. That's radical. Jesus preached the hard things. They walked away never would return to hear him again. You see, Christianity is not this game we play. It's a life that we live in this moment. By moment. Is it perfection? No, it's predictability. And the more you know when you're wrong, you come back to where you departed. When you shoot across the road and there's no cars coming, you go back to where you departed. You deal with it. That's the Christian life. You always can know when you're out here in left field or right field because Jesus is just not as meaningful to you and his word not authoritative enough in your life anymore. Something has led you astray. Well, the word for devotion there is not in the Greek text. It's implied. Purity towards. I mean, it's all there. He just adds devotion to help you keep the continuity of thought. You say, Wayne, I'm really struggling with what you're saying. Put, the, put it together for me in, in simple terms that I can understand it. Well, I'm going to try. I may miss it, but I'm going to try. Let's go back to what I said, <coughs> said a moment ago. Excuse me. Someone says, I don't feel as close to the Lord as I once did. Well, what or who led you astray? What has taken Christ's place that used to satisfy you in your heart? What has disturbed your devotion only to Christ? 
Where have you sought satisfaction apart from him? See, this is where a lot of religions mess up. We're not a religion. We're a relationship. But they think it's all in the church. No, sir, it's in Christ. And you can't ever find it outside of him. Someone says, I love the message of grace because now I can do anything I want to and it's okay. (laughs) Who has led you astray? Grace does not mean the freedom to do as you please. Where in the world has it come from? Grace is the power in Jesus Christ that lives within us to do as we should. Who has led you astray? Someone says, I don't have to confess sin. I'm already forgiven. Who has led you astray? 1 John 1, 9 says, confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness. That's in the present tense, not in the aorist, as if that was a salvation verse. But he said, continue to confess, continue to confess. Well, the forgiveness is already there, but the key that unlocks the door and lets you experience that forgiveness in your daily walk and be cleansed by his blood is by by the willingness to confess it. Word, homo legeo, Lord, I agree with you. You told me, you told me that if I obeyed my flesh, I'd be in this mess. You are right, and I'm sick of it, and I want to repent of it. And you know what? (laughs) God is the greatest psychologist. (laughs) If I could use that carefully, you understand my thinking? Because he knows how much we need to confess sin because he wants to continually remind us of how desperate we are for him to do in our life what we cannot do. And every time I confess my sin, I agree with him one more time. Lord, it is depraved, it is sick, and it is getting worse. It'll lie to a game warden (laughs) knowing all the truth that it knows. Well, Someone says, someone sings. We can do this all the time. Whether you love the hymns or whether you love the chorus, doesn't matter. We do it all the time in both. Someone sings, you are worthy, O Lord. And it sounds so good in church and everybody claps. We walk out those doors and all week long we don't give God time of day and we don't give his word time of day. Who has led you astray? I surrender all. Right. You see, many of us today have been deceived, haven't we? We've lost the joy of our salvation. Old Vance Habner, he had that twang in his voice. Somebody asked him, what's wrong with the church today? He said, oh, we've lost the wonder of our salvation. That's exactly right. Why? Because we've been deceived. Why is it that people would run out of a church that preaches the Word of God? Why would they leave? Because people don't want to have their thinking changed, which is going to change the way they live. John 3, 19 and 20, the light has come into the world. People will not come to the light because they don't want their deeds to be exposed. A is here. Oh, God, I'm desperate. B is here. I want the joy in my life. I want to enjoy you. But in between A and B is a cross, and nobody seems to be willing to tell the people the bad news. It's good, but it's bad. You've got to die in order to enjoy what's on the other side. Who has led us astray? Wayne, church is just not fun enough for me anymore. Oh, my friend. You get filled up with Jesus, walk into this church, and joy will fill this place. Fun, entertainment, that's not the church. And listen, we've got some teachers here that I tell you what, if God takes me home with Delta one day, <laughs> wouldn't that be fun? Take off and keep going. 
Listen, you could put any of them right here in this pulpit. Why? Because they love God and they love His Word. And they're just as committed in those connections classes as I am standing right here. You know why? Because we don't want people to think wrongly because it's going to end up causing them to live wrongly. That's what bad doctrine does. That's what, it's a seduction. It's a violation of a spiritual mindset of an individual. And it births a wrong lifestyle in the long run. Where are you today in your devotion? Only to Christ. Just like it was when you got saved, you had no question about it. You knew. Where has it gone today? A true teacher wants to protect the flock with God's word from being deceived, no matter what it costs him and no matter what embarrassment he has to go through. They don't, he doesn't want them to be led astray from their single-minded devotion to Christ. Well, a false teacher is scary. A false teacher doesn't tell you the whole message at the same time. He eases it in. I, I wish we, you know, I'm not preaching from 2 Peter or Genesis 3. I, a lot of things I could have said that I haven't said. I'm just trying to get it out of 2 Corinthians, which is where we are. But a false teacher will come in and he'll put error right beside the truth, and you don't know it because he's so polished and he's so good, and everybody just loves the way he says it rather than listening to what he's saying. And after a while, he puts a little more error and a little less truth. And after a while, a little, whole lot more error. And after a while, it's just all error, and they're believing him. But there's a spiritual death, not in the sense of eternal spiritual death, but there's a spiritual dying of a congregation when they don't hear God's word. You see, it starves them to death when you don't give them that. There's an old farmer, had a mule. And that mule ate oats every day, and the farmer was buying the oats. And finally one day he said, you know, these oats are just getting too high-priced. And he looked at the oat, the dry oat, and he said, you know, that kind of looks like a piece of sawdust. So he started cutting up some things, getting some sawdust, and he'd take his oats and just put a little bit at a time. Every week he'd just, about several weeks went by. After a while, it was more sawdust than it was oats. And finally, on one day, it was all sawdust. And that mule came in starving to death, ate and ate and ate. He said, look at here, save me all that money, and he's still doing good. He finished, looked at him kind of miserably, and fell over dead. That's the way false teaching works. You say, Wayne, I can't forgive my brother. Who's led you astray? You say, Wayne, I've got some gripes about something. Who's led you astray? Why are you behaving like you're behaving? Something has gotten in here and changed the way you think. And that's the way it happens. The only solution, the only solution, verse by verse, word for word, God's word will erode and disarm error. It'll get the sawdust out, back to where it's pure oats. And that's what salvages the church in any day, but particularly in our day. Well, you've been kind listened. Thank you. <laughs> I love it when I look out and see you paying attention. That's For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.